The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarin.com slash rain. Want to make a podcast? Let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters, and it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. You're listening to the Afterburn Podcast, episode number four. Altitude. Altitude. Tower 26 is released to you, runway 4, left wing 0, 4, 0, and 5, clear for takeoff. Sea tide, Altera zero eyes, we're clear for takeoff, clear for the airspace. Fire protector. Going down the chute, as soon as I pull off this target, I know if I lose a spot and I don't shoot, he's gone. He knows we're there, we burn the target, he's going to run, and they won't get another chance to get this guy. That's the voice of my guest today, Major Cody Shiv Wilton, who's entering his third season as the commander and pilot of the A-10 demo team. In that clip, he's talking about his first deployment to Afghanistan and strafing some insurgents up in the mountains. We're going to talk everything from A-10 demo, coming back from sequestration today, what he had to do to get that going, his deployment to Afghanistan, as well as his beginning in the Air Force, which is rather unique. He was enlisted. He was a linguist who spoke Russian and did a lot of exchanges or rather a lot of interaction with the Russians and uh, ensuring all of our treaties were, were kept there. Before we get rolling into today's podcast, I'd like to thank my new Patreon supporter, Clay Rethlake, who joined at the Director of Ops level. Again, if you're looking for some additional content in between episodes, behind the scenes, exclusive Q&A, the ability to participate in some show development, as well as see who's coming on the show. A lot of other benefits there as well. You can go over to patreon.com backslash the Afterburn podcast and support the show and get a lot of additional benefits there. I'd also like to thank my uh, sponsor for today's episode, Wingman Watches. Again, if you have a group who's looking to build a custom watch, I highly recommend Wingman Watches. Swing over to wingmanwatch.com and start your build today. It's a veteran-owned company. Everything is built right here in the United States. And again, they do a phenomenal job of taking your concept and making it into a timepiece that'll last forever. And finally, before we get into the episode today, wherever you're listening, please hit subscribe and leave me a review. That definitely helps me out. And I think with that said, that's enough of the admin stuff. Over to the interview today with Major Cody Shiv Wilton. Check one, two, three. Man, that sounds amazing, Shiv. That's amazing. <laughs> uh, just perfect. Audio. Well, Shiv, thanks for uh, joining me on the podcast, man. I'm really excited to have you on here. It was fun raging around for a few years on demo with you. And now uh, everyone gets to hear what you have to say. So, with that being said, let's get after it. Why don't you tell us a little about right. where you are today, uh, what you're doing, and I know people will be interested in hearing that. Awesome. So I'm Major Cody Shiv Wilton. I'm the currently the uh, A-10 demonstration pilot out at Davis-Monthan Air, uh, Air Force Base in Arizona. 
And with that too, you're rolling into your third season as a demo pilot, right? Yep. Doing a third year. So, uh, what are we, a victory lap, we'll call it. Yeah. Cause normally it's just a two year deal, but, uh, back for one more, that's kind of exciting. Yeah, it's definitely exciting. You know, it just kind of lined up. We obviously you, you were there, but we stood up this program, um, in 18 from scratch and, uh, obviously we made a lot of moves in the, uh, the way the demo construct is set up within the air force and all those changes. So, uh, just kind of one more year to see some of the big changes go through before we hand it off. Yeah. So you stood the A-10 program back up. It had been shut down after sequestration for what about six years, right? Uh, seven. Yeah. And you've gone in just a two and a half year time or two year time span, right? From standing the program up. And now you guys got jets that are painted with heritage colors and things like that. So you really have like transformed that program. Yeah. We've been pushing hard for everything. Probably, uh, you know, we, we win some, lose some, but we won a lot, uh, cause we got a lot of great support throughout the wing. Um, actually our wing commander and group commander, uh, when we set up the program used to be safety observers and narrators back in the day. Um, so they understood the importance and that was huge. Yeah. I think it's one of those things and it's a struggle. It's a long-term investment and everyone at the wing who is worried about generating sorties this day, tomorrow, next week, or whatever it might be. It's really tough to see that when you're supporting a demo team, it's a long-term investment. It's going to be some eight-year-old kid who goes to an air show and never thought about flying or never thought about joining the military. And now the hook is there. And then 10 years later, they're pursuing a path. So with that being said, you kind of had a different path than, or a slightly different path than most pilots get into the Air Force. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. So I was uh, probably similar to you. Um, you know, in high school, I was eyeing the academies. Um, and so that, that was where I was planning on trying to go and work my way up towards that. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, I, I had, we'll call it a misstep, um, that I'm totally happy with now, but you know, I had a daughter at a young age, so that kind of took the Academy off the table. Um, at that point, you know, now I got to support uh, my daughter and her mom and trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And obviously I was looking at, uh, going to the air force Academy. So, uh, enlisting became kind of a natural decision from there. Um, so that's where kind of where it started. So I enlisted, you know, at 18 and, uh, when I went to the Mets office to get a job, you know, they, you have this huge list of jobs and so many opportunities. You take the ASVAB, right? You get your score and that's what qualifies you for different jobs. Uh, but it is a massive list of different jobs. And you're like, dude, I could be any of this stuff. And they're like, yeah, man, uh, you, Scored, well, this is what you scored. So you can pick any of these jobs that you want to do, you know, be who you want to be. Right. And, uh, I just told him, I was like, which one gives me the most college credits? And he goes, Oh, this linguist gig, that'll do that. You go out to Monterey, you go for a year. It's a regionally accredited school. I'm like, sounds good. Most college credits. And it's like 45 college credits, you know, for one year at Monterey or something like that. Um, so that's how I ended up, you know, picking that job. But when I enlisted, that was kind of the start of the whole process. Well, you know, that's, I always talk about, you know, having a goal and going after it. And then there's going to be hurdles and setbacks. Obviously you had a hurdle to overcome initially, right? Being a young, young guy right out of high school and now has to support a family, but you still wanted to go fly. So was it, and that's what I think it's like, is it really interesting is the fact that you knew you wanted to be a pilot and then still figuring out, Hey, I have to kind of navigate this hurdle, which is all right, I got to provide for the family, but I also need to get college credits since I'm going after it. 
I assume your drive, it sounds like it never changed and your focus really never changed. You were just adapting to the environment that you had. Yeah, exactly. And so part of that, there's actually another hurdle. So when I was a kid, you know, back in the eighties, childhood asthma was a popular diagnosis, um, that a lot of people had. And so when I went to enlist initially, you know, I had high scores, everything, I had a lot of family in the military and then, uh, they turned me down cause I had childhood asthma, even though I went through the waiver process and, you know, it said I was good, but uh, somebody has to sign off on that waiver and he elected not to, um, the first time around and I was like, Oh, well, this is terrible. So I started trying to like shift my uh, game plan and all that. And I actually, one day I'm like, you know what? No, I really want to do this. Like I want to be in the military. I want to be a pilot. This is my end goal. I actually ended up writing my congressman, um, a letter and, you know, I wrote it and kind of forgot about it. And then two months later, I got a letter back from that congressman that said, take this letter to any MEPS center you want to go to and you will be in the air force. And that was it. It's really funny. You mentioned that I did an interview with uh, a good buddy of mine who's F-35 pilot Fitty and similar there. He had a back injury, which they said, no way, no how. And he ended up writing his congressman and not saying that's like the, the get out of jail free card, but with most things, there usually is a waiver involved. If it makes sense and it's safe, you know, that it just takes the right person looking at it to say, yeah, this makes sense. We can let this guy go through, or this was like a erroneous or just a blanket, you know, diagnosis as a kid. Cause that was the fat at the time or whatever it might be. So I think not taking yeah. no for an answer and like pursuing it till the end, right. Until it is no kidding. This is a no, or now, you know what? We can let this guy go through. So that's how old were you? Like, again, you're kind of in high school when you're going through that process, right? Yeah. Just finishing up high school. And I guess, again, the focus is just become a pilot. So you're going to do whatever you can to, to be a pilot, right? Yeah. So that was kind of the game plan going in, but you know, at the time now I've, I've got a different focus, you know, I have a different job. So, um, you know, I list, enlisted, went to boot camp, uh, went out to Monterey, uh, to learn Russian. And then, uh, I was out there for a year, which is, I mean, obviously you can't complain about going to Monterey and it's pretty, the school there, uh, defense language Institute is actually one of the best language uh, training centers in the world. It's world renowned for uh, the quality of education you get there um, in that language. So in one year, they can make you extremely capable in a language versus, uh, you know, for it, I think they, the equivalent is about six years of college education. You can get in one year at DLI. Yeah, that's incredible. So did you walk out fluent in Russian? Uh, I wouldn't fluent to an extent, right? You yeah, know, a, a, a tough three, language. three level for yeah. How we, sorry about that. Uh, for how we measure it, a three, three level, um, is what it was, but, uh, in reading and listening and they don't really focus on uh, speaking too much, uh, there in that first course, cause your job is mostly to read and listen. Um, but you do do, uh, you do train and speaking a bit. Gotcha. Uh, what, what'd you go do when you left Monterey? I came out to Davis mountain and flew on the EC one thirties compass call. So the jamming platform. And so how long did you do the compass call? Uh, so that was kind of the thing, like, uh, when I enlisted, you know, and I wanted to be a pilot, but you kind of got a back burner those it's, it's a goal, but you, you can't just go into a job and be like, I'm going to be a pilot and tell everybody that's what I'm going to be. And then they're not going to invest in me as a linguist. Right. And so, uh, my goal was just to be the best at that job that I could be. So I was there, um, for about three years and I was able to work my way up to an instructor in my crew position there. 
um, just constantly taking every opportunity they had for any extra training, uh, advancement and stuff like that. What you said about being the best that holds true. Like, yeah, you still want to be a pilot, but you can't just roll in there and say, Hey, I want to be a pilot, send me to pilot training, you know, or, you know get me a commission and send me to pilot training. Y- your job is to be a linguist. That's what the air force is paying you to do. So no matter what exactly. you do, you have like, to be the best, right? Yeah. And that's, you're not going to, um, you know, you just got to be good at whatever your current job is. If you're not good at your current job, then you're not going to pick up those mentors and those people that'll help push you along the way to be, you know, greater to be what that is you want to be in the future. You know, um, if you want people to invest in you, then you got to invest in, in what you're doing, um, and go all in. And that, yeah, it's spot on. And that's applicable to no matter what you're doing in life, I think. So you, yeah. you, you know, obviously you kicked butt there for three years and in that process, in that three years, do you start applying to OTS or what's the, what's the process there? No. So at this time, you know, I was focused on being good at that job and then, you know, hopefully moving on, as you know, like when you're a pilot, once you become an instructor, like life in the squadron, gets a little bit easier. You've read most of the books, you've done a lot of your studying up to that point, And now you're mostly refreshing or learning things that are new. Um, so my game plan was to go to school, start finishing up my degree and everything after, uh, I hit that point. But, um, then they gave me a call and they're like, dude, we got to send somebody to advanced Russian and you're going to be the guy. So they wanted to me back to Monterey for a year. And that's where I kind of guided that opportunity. So I talked to him, I'm like, look, I'm, I would love to do advanced Russian, but if I do advanced Russian now, it kind of changes a lot of my, uh, timelines that I got planned. And so I worked that into going to do the open skies job. So they're like, Hey, you take this advanced Russian slot. We'll let you interview to be an interpreter at the defense threat reduction agency, um, where we do the treaty work with Russia for the open skies treaty and the start treaty, um, and all that, which is extremely interesting job. Um, and again, you go back to Monterey, get more college credits. So how, how does it go from being a cryptological operator linguist to becoming a A-10 pilot? Um, so after when I did that advance, so I went back to Monterey to learn to be an interpreter, uh, for Ditra. So that was like another year and a half in Monterey. Um, and then I went out to DC, um, just South of, uh, Alexandria is where Fort Belvoir is. And they have, uh, the defense threat reduction agency out there. Um, and it's a pretty cool assignment. It's joint. So it's mostly Navy and air force in there. There's some army guys on the start treaty side. Uh, but the open skies portion is Navy and Air Force. And, um, you know, our mission there is to, we would go to Russia, fly our airplane to Russia and take pictures, uh, all open source type stuff. It's all treaty work. Um, and then we would also do some treaty negotiations uh, as the interpreters and stuff like that. And uh, then we would fly on the Russian airplanes when they would come here to the state. So I actually have, you know, if I look at my flight records, I got some, very odd airplanes on there from doing the open skies treaty. Uh, How was it flying on Russian aircraft? That's fascinating. You know, it was their airplane was, it was a TU-154 that they also used for like astronaut transport and training, um, like navigation training and stuff like that. And then it would dual roll as their open skies airplane. Um, And it was actually extremely reliable. It kind of looks, the TU-154 looks like a 727, the, uh, three engine with the motor at the top. Yeah. They're in the back all, all tail mounted. And, 
It was extremely reliable. I remember one time we had a delay, uh, a delay because our APU wouldn't start. Um, we were in Alaska with them, and uh, I remember specific. You know, we would sit in the front as they're doing air traffic control com. They have their own interpreters, but we would monitor and also weigh in um, if air traffic control wasn't giving them uh, what they were requesting because they're. Uh, the Open Skies Treaty mission is actually number three on the priority list. So you got, you know, presidential transport and then uh, medevac and then open skies. That's where it falls. Uh, so they pretty much can fly wherever they want. And air traffic control has to honor that as long as there's no other, you know, those top two priorities aren't in the way. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So they can just tell them where they want to go and ATC has to make it happen. Exactly. And, you know, obviously that you would get some controllers that may not be familiar with that. So that's why we would, you know, as an interpreter, you'd sit up there. We would also monitor, you know, where they were taking photos and, and stuff like that. Even though it's open source, we just wanted to track that. Um, so we would have an interpreter monitoring them in the back, and then we'd have another one up there assisting with air traffic control if needed. Um, if you had a young controller that wasn't, uh, you know, familiar with the open skies program or something like that. And I imagine your interaction um, between the two or between the, the Russians and you, it probably ended kind of on the plane or the brief debrief type deal. You guys didn't actually get a chance. Oh, to. Oh no, we, we'd stay at the same hotels. We'd go out to dinners together. Um, you know, it was obviously very professional interactions. It's not like you're, you're going out to clubs with them or anything like that after work, but uh, you know, every, everything's pretty contained, but it's a full, you know, about a five days. Um, that you're together and you guys pretty much do everything together, um, throughout that time. The, um, one story I have is from like the Dubai air show and the Su 57, um, test pilot. And he was, he actually was flying a Su 35 there, but it was kind of interesting. You know, we have this animosity at this, you know, large geopolitical level, but like when it breaks down to it, like in just two people, two pilots or two crew members, like we're both like fascinating. I'm fascinated about him, obviously his plane and vice versa. There, obviously there's some intelligence pieces of it, but at the core of it, it's like, you're just two pilots or you're just two crew members doing something for your country. So I always found that kind of fascinating. Oh yeah. They, we had great relationships with the guys um, and the crews and we'd work with them multiple times. You know, they, they'd come here for about 10 missions a year and we do about 10 missions a year in Russia. And it's, mostly the same crews with a few bodies changing out each time. Um, so you get to know them pretty well and, uh, they were all great guys. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's really fascinating. Whole, like a whole, a whole different world and completely different from what you're doing today. Huh? (laughs) Oh yeah. But it was, I do remember you were talking about the, you know, flying on their airplane and it was, it was actually super, I I enjoyed flying on theirs a little bit more than ours just because the layout, uh, was a little bit better. Like their, their cameras were in the belly of the plane where the luggage compartment would be normally. And so they had that whole uh, bottom of the plane set up and it's just one, you know, the camera system itself is maybe, you know, the size of your average office desk area where the glass and the camera sits. Uh, But so the rest of the bottom of the plane was padded with like gym mats. So you could go down there and just lay down and watch where they're taking pictures. And when you're going just from place to place, take a nap or, you know, whatever you wanted, but the whole, their layout of their airplane was actually pretty awesome. Uh, And then that's funny. It never broke. That one time we had a delay because it's APU wouldn't start. And they're like, well, we could start it with the start part. That'd be fine. But we'd obviously like to get this working. And so we were only delayed two hours. And I I remember specifically their engineer 
Um, he probably had some tools down below, but in the flight deck, there's a little hatch that he went under uh, to go work on something down there. And he took a TO and then, and, and he took a steak knife. And I was like, what are you taking the steak knife for? And he's like, oh, you know, you never know. And, and then he went down in the plane. Two hours later, he comes out of the hatch and the APU works. <laughs> All with a steak knife and some technical orders. Like, yeah. yeah. Maybe he, he might have had some tools down there and been messing with me, but <laughs> I was like, holy cow. But it worked in that it was an extremely reliable airplane. You know, our Air Force Open Skies airplane is still an original 135 with the original motors um, and all that. And it's, uh, you know, back in Boeing design and a lot of this, you know, systems on it are proprietary. Like for a to change a Boeing tire, you need a jack that works for Boeing airplanes. Um, and there's because, you know, the T-154 and all that was designed uh, during communism. Um, they... They, everything's interchangeable, you know, a jack is a jack and all that. So it makes their, their whole system a little bit more reliable that way um, for finding parts and equipment. You know, if we blew a tire at a Russian airfield, it could take a long time to get a jack just to jack it up and replace that tire there. So you do that for, is that a, as a three-year assignment that um, you're flying around in open, open skies and then over to yeah, the threat so reduction? If, it was a three-year tour. I think I did uh, about two and a half years. So again, and I, I did my best to be good at that job um, and was an instructor there. And then uh, because of that, you know, I had a great push for my squadron. So, or from our detachment there at Open Skies. Um, and that's where, you know, I looked and I'm like, what am I going to do next? You know, I've done this Open Skies thing. I really don't want to go back to just being uh, on compass call again and doing a job I was already an instructor in. So I wanted to continue to progress and I was looking at options. I'm like, this really kind of is where I should finish this career out. Um, and so I started, that's when I really started buckling down and I took a look at how many college credits I needed, what I needed to do to get my bachelor's and then what I needed to do to do my OTS package uh, after that and make it as good of a package as I possibly could. When you go like, Hey, you're, you're going to go to OTS and you're going to be a pilot. Like, you know what you're going into, right? When you start. Exactly. So when you do the OTS application, um, and this is, it, it may have changed. Obviously this is kind of dated back in 0809, but then, and I think it's pretty similar still, um, you put three career options on there. I want, and they're like, you can put pilot, you know, CISO, um, or back then they, you know, they saw navigators or electronic warfare officer, or you could put pilot, you know, Intel officer or whatever, uh, but you put three jobs on there and obviously they will try to get you your first one. If you don't qualify for that, then they'll go for number two. And they say on the application, they're like, don't just put one job, you know, put three jobs, give yourself options and yada, yada, yada. Well, and I did not want to do that. You know, I wanted to be a pilot and I'm like, if I can't do it in the air force, I'll find another way to do it. So I just put pilot, 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 um, on there to make it clear I, that I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And Cause I, you know, there, there I've, I still had some time left on my enlistment. So doing guard or reserve wasn't an option at the time. Um, and then, you know, there's still the Navy and army. I was willing to go wherever it took to be a pilot, but that was my main goal. Um, the, the premise of like, know what you want to go do, go be the best at it and uh, get after it doesn't change. I was kind of like you uh, for ROTC. Like I just put pilot. That's, that's all I wanted to do as far as rated. <laughs> like I didn't put navigator or anything like that. I was like, I'm not a pilot. Like I'm going to eventually be a pilot. Um, and so I'm going exactly. to find a way to do it. 
but I th- definitely think you're right. Like, I don't think it changes like OTS while it's the shortest program to become an officer, getting an OTS law is not always the easiest, right? Cause you're competing with people who are already established in civilian careers. And then I don't know, maybe the air force doesn't need that many pilots this year. And there's only five pilot slots. Like you just kind of roll the bone. So I think if you want to be a pilot in the air force, go in that Academy or ROTC is probably your highest probability of getting a pilot slot. Would you agree? Oh, without a doubt. So yeah, the OTS slots are just, they're, it's, it's a mixed bag on what you're going to get, but the Academy and ROTC have some guaranteed slots, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but obviously it works out for you. You get an OTS slot, right? And then obviously a pilot slot that goes along with that. Yep. Correct. So it was what, you know, like I said, I had great leadership there. So they helped me put together an awesome package uh, to get through and, and to get into OTS. And, you know, from there, they just continue to push me uh, on to further my career and my aspirations. So uh, we moved, you know, went to OTS down at Maxwell uh, that summer, almost right away after I got picked up, maybe within six months of finding out I got picked, selected for OTS. Yeah, that's and, awesome. Yeah, that was that was definitely a change, you know, because I did boot camp, obviously, and I'm like, all right, it's probably going to be similar to boot camp. And it is not the same. OTS is definitely <laughs> different. <laughs> how, how so? I remember my, so day one, this, this kind of will sum it up, but my day one frustration is we went to class and are like, you guys need to write a paper, print it out, bring it in. Um, and you know, you go back to your dorm and the dorm is a lot more lax. It's not, you know, as much folding t-shirts and, and that extreme attention to detail on very minor things, but that's what they're teaching at boot camp. Um, at OTS, it's more bigger picture, still attention to detail, but it's not folding shirts that they're worried about. It's, but then they have us tell us they want us to write that paper, print it out, bring it in the next day uh, while we're at home during our study time or back in the dorms. And there's no printer. Like the, it was a, it's a figure it out mentality. Like you guys can do this and they just give you a task and you've got to problem solve to execute that task. And you have to know that they know you don't have access to a printer. Like that's going to be a challenge. Um, but that's how they kind of present those problems. And that's like day, I mean, day one, and that's the rest of your air force career, like everything, you're never gonna have enough resources. You're never gonna have enough time. And you're always gonna be faced with all these different problems. And it's how do you deal with that? So that's interesting. That's how it starts off. I mean, again, attention detail is inherent in that kind of problem solving, I think. Exactly. And so going through that, uh, you know, it, it just, kind of put it into perspective on the, you know, as a younger enlisted and when you're in boot camp, it's like, we will give you the tools. Here's what we want you to do and how we want you to do it. And we want you to execute it, execute it with detail and precision. Um, where on the officer side, a little bit, a little bit different is here's the task we want you to accomplish, uh, figure it out. And prime example, as you fast forward, I know you did a lot of other stuff in your 810 career, but standing the the demo team up, like there's no coloring book. There's no list of instructions how to do this, but you have to create this team and figure out how to go from point A to point B in a short period of time. And I think that's a, a like prime example of the graduate level from write the paper and print it with no printer to stand up a demo team yeah. in a matter of months with no guidance. Exactly. The same, the same set, same type of task right? Problem solving. Yeah. That's what's Um, all, that's what it's all about. All about problem solving, how you deal with it. Uh, I know obviously OTS goes well for you. Then you're off to pilot training, 
we could pilot training can be an episode in itself, but I kind of want to talk a little bit about the A10 and your career in the A10 and how you got to where you are today. So you go through the A10 uh, B course, uh, learn how to fly the plane, how to employ the weapons. Um, so about Afghanistan, how was that uh, deployment for you guys? Were you pretty busy then? Uh, actually, we weren't too busy. So we did a wintertime deployment. So uh, obviously, Afghanistan is extremely cold, especially up on the north side, uh, high elevation. And so the fighting really slows down over the winter. Um, so we got there in September and uh, got home in April. And so throughout that time, most of the time, it was pretty quiet. It was kind of the standard, you know, 95% of your sorties are really kind of boring. Um, and then, but it's the other 5% of the time where things kick off and get interesting. That is really where you make your money and what they pay you for. Yeah. Did you have any of those 5% uh, type sorties while you were out there? Or again, was it kind of benign just roaming around? Uh, no, I had, a, I had a few um, interesting ones. You know, you get a lot of, a lot of the times, you know, we get a troops in contact or stuff out there, um, but it would subside, you know, the army's pretty good at handling themselves most of the time. So uh, they would call us, and then by the time we got there, you know, things had slowed down a little bit. Um, and the rules of engagement were extremely strict um, back in those years. I'm, I'm not sure if you deployed around that time as well, too. What What uh, years were you there? It was 12 to 13. Okay. Yeah, actually, I was I was doing the MC12 in 2012, and I remember actually uh, watching a HUD tape of a, a F-16 guy, and it was like he was a lawyer. A fighter pilot and a lawyer in order to drop yeah. ordinance, going through the rules of engagement that had come out again, it gets, you know, for those who don't know, it gets published and they change, they could change daily as far as what's going on. And so, uh, he read like to the letter, like confirm your cutoff surrounded with no means of escape. Um, while you're dealing with someone on the radio, who's getting shot at and fighting for their life. Uh, and again, you're dealing a geopolitical environment and, uh, there's a lot of balancing that goes on. So it's not just roll in there and be the biggest, strongest, fastest and blow everything up. you gotta, you gotta know what the rules are and play by the rules, which can be challenging. Exactly. Extremely challenging. And so, I mean, the benefit of that is, you know, I can leave that deployment knowing that I never had a civilian harm because of my action or anything like that, just because the rules of engagement were so uh, restrictive that there, there was no way uh, that there were any civilians anywhere near where I employed some missions where we get called in, uh, by ISR assets and they were the only ones out there. And we, you know, we had a probably a more derogatory term I won't use for these missions, but you know, we just show up, uh, <laughs> do the attack and then we'd leave. They didn't want us to hang around. They didn't want us to be, you know, a part of any, uh, after action type stuff or really anything leading up to it. They just wanted us to get in there, drop our weapons on the target and uh, get out. And most of these were high value targets. Yeah. So um, you work a couple of those while you're there? Yes. Yeah. And actually the first time, you know, I strafed, uh, an actual, you know, where I could see the target, the individual, um, in my targeting pod and track them and strafe that individual, um, with a gun was on one of those missions. And it was, it was pretty challenging. You know, we showed up, they called us, it was a long flight to get up there. It was way up in the North side of Afghanistan. I had never been up in that area before. In fact, I don't think our squadron had been up there yet and uh extremely wild terrain up there had you ever went up that way yeah i mean the mountains are insane and i'm actually seeing mount everest way off in the distance and you're just i mean there's there's nothing but mountains um yeah. di different world and this one 
this one was, um, it was, there was this huge Canyon and there's a village inside the Canyon. And I'm like, dude, the, I didn't know Afghanistan had its own grand Canyon, but it was massive. Um, and the village is down inside there where this guy's located and, and he's kind of out away from the village and they call us in and we can only see him in the pod because he's in this Canyon on two sides of the hold. You know, we're holding 360 degrees around the target about five miles out. Cause we don't want him to hear us or see us. Um, and we're looking through those targeting pods to try to find them. So there's only about a 20 degree window on the South side and on the North side where you can actually see the target. And the rest of the time you're blind, he could be moving, going somewhere else. Uh, and we'd have, we'd have to pick him back up with help from the ISR asset that was on station. How was it? Uh, so you ended up strafing that uh, high value target there in that Canyon. Yeah. How, yeah. yeah. How, how was it managing the terrain, you know, positive identification of it? Like how, how what were you guys doing? How did, how did that flow? So the, the challenge because of that small window where we could actually see them, our goal was to do, we do what's uh, a buddy strafe um, where my, at this time I was a wingman. So my flight lead is going to laze him from his targeting pod, I'm going to pick it up and then I'm going to strafe that uh, laser spot um, on the ground. Cause I won't be able to actually physically see him through the HUD. Um, but in my HUD, I'll have symbology on where that laser spot is. So I just need to strafe that laser spot. Um, but due to that tight window where we can only pick him up, you know, we had to figure out the geometry of how we're going to make that work. So he can continuously laze him that entire time, you know, that I'm down the chute, um, lining up my strafe and then pulling the trigger. Um, so that was a challenge at first, figuring out how we were going to set that up, where we were going to put him so he could get a continuous laser spot while also not, you know, lazing me in my cockpit because I don't want that. Yeah, that's, I mean, um, there, and there's a lot going on. You guys are flying um, and managing, you know, this train you're flying around, making sure you don't lose contact. That's, that's a busy time. Yeah. And, you know, we're doing this all on SATCOM, which you know how reliable that can be. Um and then, and also, you know, trying not to let him know that we're there. So at this entire time, we're trying to be quiet, hold away from him and not burn the target. And uh, so anyway, we, we finally line this up and I'm obviously a little amped up uh, to get this guy and I roll in down the chute and I lose the laser spot. And it just, for whatever reason, my targeting pod dropped it and I'm like, fighting, this is out of 45, 45 degree strafe, high angle strafe. So I've been coming at the ground pretty steep and pretty fast. Um, and I lose that spot, but I'm, I'm going down the chute. As soon as I pull off this target, I know if I lose a spot and I don't shoot, I'm, he's gone. He knows we're there. He, we burn the target. He's going to run and they won't get another chance to get this guy. And, uh, so I'm, I'm just fighting, trying to force the targeting pod to reacquire, reacquire, while I'm doing that, I forgot to bring my throttles to idle. Um, so my throttles were pushed up. So I'm actually putting the jet. It ended up, I ended up uh, overspeeding the airplane uh, while I'm down final. Cause I'm trying to, that's impressive. The A-10. <laughs> yeah, I know it's like 465 knots. You can't get there unless you're in a steep dive. I do it all the time <laughs> down in the demos, but never had I done it prior to that. Dude. So yeah, you're rolling down the chute, 45 degrees, nose low at the ground, stuck in, Max, that's what you guys call it, right? Because you don't have. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Stuck in Max. We call it Max. You yeah. Call it Mill. Yeah. Dude. Yeah. This is uh, that's sporty. Yeah. And so uh, I finally I get it to pick up the laser spot, and as soon as it picks it up, like this is my last chance to strafe. I actually have a 
a little warning in my HUD that tells me when I need to start my safe escape maneuver, which is a 4G pull-up to ensure you don't hit the ground. Um, and that's already moving. So I know I only got a couple seconds. So um, I get a quick, you know, one and a half second burst from the gun on the target and I start to pull up and the jet's making all sorts of noise because it's I've oversped it. And uh, luckily the, the bullets hit the target um, and we were successful. But we came back and obviously had a lot of debrief points on that one about kind of getting the fangs out too much and and trying too hard. But I really didn't want to burn that target at the time, you know. Yeah, you got one chance to do it. Um, how? So back up a little bit. What altitude did like roughly did you start at, or how much time do you got running down the chute to sort out this laser spot track, get on the gun, and yeah, then get so out of there? it's quick. So we do, we use a three second track time. So from the time, and that means, you know, as you roll in to point at the ground on that 45 degree dive and you roll wings level, you have three seconds to track the target and then two seconds to fire the gun, uh, for a total of five seconds on final is what you're aiming for, um, before you start to pull out of that dive. So, uh, you got about five seconds. I probably pushed that one to closer to six seconds. Uh, hence the, uh, getting a little bit too fast and pushing it to the min. Uh, before pulling the trigger and then uh, pull out. So it's not a long time to kind of figure out and sort out those problems. Um, if you have them down the chute, it's definitely not the time you want to have any of those problems for sure. And again, to kind of paint this picture, you know, you're relying on your flight lead to laser the target because when you roll and looking at the HUD, like again, the train's brown, or, yeah, it might be green up in that part. Some, you know, <laughs> but like, it's tough to see, like seeing one human being when you're rolling in at 8,000 feet or whatever it might be, is next to impossible. So you need that symbology, which is coming off your flight leads, uh, targeting pod. Um, what did you have to do to reacquire that? Was it just like kind of freeze for a second, let the jet do its magic or were you manipulating, uh, the targeting pod yourself? I was manipulating the pod, uh, myself because I knew that my pod was on the target. He, the guy, you could see him in the, in the screen in the jet. So I knew it was there. I just didn't know why it was picking, wasn't picking up the laser spot. Um, and so you can force it to search for a laser spot. So I would, I was forcing it to search continuously as I'm doing it. And as soon as it would, you know, it, it does that scan when it's searching. So as soon as the scan kind of moved away from where he was, I would recage it and force it to search again, right there where he was at. Um, and eventually it was able to pick it up. And again, I would just like to reiterate, you're doing this while you're on the roller coaster of most people's lives, right? 45 degrees, nose low, going through 400 knots, uh, and the adrenaline is just pumping the, exactly. <laughs> the A10, this is kind of something different than the Viper. Uh, when you pull that trigger, the jet freezes, right? Flight controls lock out. So whatever you're pointing at that time in theory, that's, what's going to get hit by the bullet. Exactly. So, and that's kind of the, why I needed that laser spot. Even if he's in a small area, if I don't get the gun on the target, it, because it's so accurate, it'll miss, you know, it, it it's built to be an accurate gun to take out tanks. So, um, if he's not relatively in the size of about a tank, uh, or in that area of where a tank would be sitting, then the gun will miss. So I need to put that, you know, pipper right on the target. Yeah. Different than the Viper. You can just Zorro the target, which is like most of the time when I strafe, but going that fast, <laughs> the flight control logic starts changing. I think about 450 knots or so. And so if you, if you're not off the trigger by then the jet's going to perform differently. So, uh, that's pretty awesome that the A-10 does that. And it also allows you, if you come off the trigger, you guys will strafe twice sometimes running down the chute, correct? 
Exactly. Yeah, you can do two target strafe. Um, and it, again, it just locks it down. So you lock down, shoot the first target, roll over, uh, lock it down again, and then shoot the next one. How much time do you need? That's obviously longer than five seconds down the shoot, right? Or no, is that same? same yeah, way? those ones you need five seconds. So you typically wouldn't do a two target strafe out of like a 45 degree high angle strafe. Um, you, and you would have to adjust your mills to get more time on final. If you were to do it out of like a 30, um, most of the time, I'd say 90% of the time, uh, we'll train to do that on a low altitude strafe, like a 10 degree or less, uh, strafe. So can you talk to me real quick about the different decisions that go into, uh, driving, whether it's gonna be a low angle strafe, a high angle strafe, and then maybe just a brief discussion on mills. Not that we go down the rabbit hole in that one, but what is that? <laughs> yeah. So um, typically in your medium threat or reduced threat environment, um, you're going to be medium altitude, you know, doing 30 degree strafes or 45 degree strafes, just because it keeps you a little bit safer, a little bit higher. Um, and they don't have any threat systems that are going to, uh, you know, obviously target me at those altitudes. Um, so we're not worried about, you know, AAA or, a, you know, SA, whatever uh, coming out of them, maybe a man pad, they might have those. And those are always a threat in Afghanistan, but uh, we have the MWS to help back us up on that. Now, in an increased threat environment where you got some, you know, pretty capable surface-to-air missile systems, that's where we're going to be down at 100 feet, you know, uh, working through the target area at 100 feet and then doing low-angle strafe. So popping only high enough to acquire the target, and then once we acquire the target, we're in, and you can take that strafe all the way down to 75 feet. Yeah, and 75 feet is real low. Boy, I think is awesome about the A10 <laughs> is the fact like you guys could do a south to north run in and then immediately turn around and be right back in north to south, right? Yeah, exactly. You just come off at a ninety, and then uh, but about thirty seconds later, you could be rolling in from the different direction. And when you put it, I'm fascinated by the the Galate. I think most most guys uh, who fly fighters like at least want to shoot it once. Um, but when you're out there in a combat load, how many rounds are you carrying, and how much? time does that give you on the trigger uh it's 1150 rounds uh, typically our our burst would be about a two second burst uh which will that you know the first second is 50 rounds um but every set subsequent second is 70 rounds uh, and that 50 rounds is just because of, you know the, the gun has to spin up to speed so it's a little bit slower on that first second and in combat um, you guys are shooting hei rounds high explosive incendiary rounds usually exactly HEI rounds, which have about the same frag ring as a hand grenade. So it's like a hand grenade, you know, 70 hand grenades in a second uh, going out in that one little spot. Um, but typically, you know, depending on the target, we'll drive the burst. So actually, you know, if we were loaded up with a combat mix uh, instead of the HEI and we we're going after tanks, a two second burst would be sufficient to take out a tank, uh, no problem. But people are a little more resilient, they're smaller. Um, so in Afghanistan, we would try to get, you know, a three second burst on target, um, put a little bit more rounds down. Yeah. You say people are more resilient. It's kind of, it is crazy to see what a human being can survive. I know I've seen 500 pound weapons detonate right next to a person or in the building or in the car and people go running out. Yeah. I imagine a 10, usually the gun is kind of the default uh, thing, but you guys carry a lot of or- other ordnance. Yeah, correct. We're, we can pretty much carry, uh, almost everything that's out there right now, except we don't, you know, mess around with the SDBs, the small diameter bombs, um, just cause we, you know, can't put as much smash on them as some of the other platforms out there. So it's not, 
as effective as it would be. Well, you can't put enough smash but, uh, unless you use your technique of just diving at the ground, but then again, it kind of defeats the point yeah. of the SDB. Yeah, exactly. And so going back a little bit, when you're talking about obviously strafing and mills, um, you know, for a 30 high angle strafe, we would start normally at six seconds. And what that will buy us is that three second track time, two second burst on the gun. And then we got to pull out uh, to not go below a thousand feet. Min altitude is what we're shooting for on those. Um, if you wanted to, now you can take that. And that's all math and geometry as you're familiar. Um, but you can take that triangle of the strafe pass and extend that out. And now you can move out a little bit further in your base distance, you know, your distance from the target before you roll in. Um, and go a higher altitude, let's call it 7,000 feet. Um, and now that may buy me three more seconds on final. So now I can get a six second track time uh, versus a three second track time uh, and give me more time to acquire the target. And there are certain scenarios where you may, you know, devise mills like that. If it's an extremely reduced threat area, um, you're not worried about someone shooting you while you're down on final. Um, but that whole three second track time is, you know, that's based on having a triple A threat out there. And once I roll out, now he knows I'm pointing at something and I'm going to be pointing at it for a little while. Um, so that's when he's going to want to shoot me. Um, so you obviously want to minimize that time. That's what's fun about being in a pilot. There's a lot of challenges that go into it and you're always trying to be the best at it and, you know, do your job right. Exactly. Yeah. There's tons of opportunities to uh, mess it up and you don't want to be that guy. Right. But again, there's no perfect sortie. Right. And we all make mistakes like you alluded to, like, Hey, I, I was going fast and oversped the jet. Like that's a mistake. Uh, but you learn from it. And then also you tell those around you about it so they can learn from it and then potentially not make the same mistake. And, and then in the end we're all better. And the whole goal is to make the team better. Exactly. And that was, we actually went back after that. So our, the A-10 has a, uh, a we call it a peak performance tone and a chop tone um, because the, you know, Buffett to stall is pretty, it's rapid. I mean, as soon as you get in the Buffett and the A-10, you're stalled already. Um, so we have these tones to kind of warn us. Um, so you would get a chop tone in the jet right before you're going to stall it. Well, uh, unfortunately for me on that one, especially as I'm doing that safe escape maneuver and got to pull out of that dive, I got a, I had a chop tone going off and I wasn't familiar because I hadn't do this. And this is in the manual. That's something we, get, we talk about training, but you normally don't ever take the A-10 up to its max speed. Um, so it's not something that's reinforced later. Um, but it also does a chop tone when you're overspeeding it. So as I was pulling out of this dive, I'm like, Oh dude, I, I, I shouldn't be stalling right now. Like there's no way I'm about to stall, but I got this chop tone going off the whole time. So we kind of went back and talked about that. Like, yeah, you know, don't forget the chop tone also is when you're overspeeding it. So that kind of weighed into how many G's I was pulling at the time because I didn't want to stall the jet, but I'm also getting closer to the ground on a 45 degree dive the automation and knowing what the plane is telling you, because th there's so much to know about each one of these aircraft that you fly, the weapons you employ, or, you know, just point A to point B it depends on what you're doing. And if you don't know it, or if you haven't been exposed to it or find yourself in that situation, like you, like you probably never found yourself in that scenario again, but by telling that story, it is going to reinforce it and some other younger dude, or even some experienced A-10 guy who's never experienced that, like, oh, that might be a clue later on that they just store in their memory when they find themselves in a situation. That's why I think it's so important to share the lessons learned because there's just so much to know when it comes to aviation. Oh, exactly. Yeah. 
I've had a few opportunities to share stories with the squadron throughout my career. And so you, and again, with that, um, this is really kind of fast forwarding, but you're a FCF pilot, a functional check uh, pilot, right? So you're taking the planes that just had wings swapped out, motors changed out, flight controls worked on. So you probably have a few lessons learned flying those type planes coming right out of heavy maintenance that I imagine you could share with everyone. Yeah, there's, um, it's definitely a little bit more interesting. So we, we always, we joke that being an FCF pilot is essentially just a future mishap pilot, uh, <laughs> for it. the safety investigation when something goes wrong. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we've had, I've had some issues, but really our maintenance is very good. And as you get more experience in the airplane, um, and more knowledge about the systems, it becomes a lot more benign, um, and you do see some issues and a lot of times the SCF checklist that we fly throughout this, you know, you, you test every system of the airplane, every single system, um, you'll, the autopilot in every single mode, you know, you'll test, you'll take it up to its max speed. You'll take it down to stall speeds, make sure you get those, the tones and the chop tone and steady tone and all that. And the buffet comes, uh, you know, after those, and you want to make sure every system works. So when we hand this jet over to a brand new student on his first flight, you know, the jet is as, uh, advertised, right? Everything's working the way it should be. Um, we also test that man reversion system that everybody knows about the A-10. So we'll, uh, put it in man rev during the FCS and fly it around for a little while, um, make sure all of that's in limits. And that's usually the most squirrely part of the whole thing. You also shut down engines while you're doing it. That's, a, that's a little strange to go up, you know, and be at 20,000 feet shutting down motors. Um, yeah. I don't, uh, even, I don't like the sound of that period, even though you have two. No. Yeah. What, what's, uh, what's, what's, what's flying like in man reversion? I imagine I just hear stories. It's hard. Yeah. So the system, you know, everybody talks about it's a, a system to get you home and there have been pilots that have landed. Uh, Kim Campbell, uh, Colonel Campbell uh, now has done it uh, previously. Her husband, uh, Soup Campbell um, was our wing commander actually when we stood up the demo program. Um, but the, the man reversion system was designed just for you to get out of bad guy territory. So you're fighting, you know, across the front lines on the other side of the FIBA or fly and you take battle damage. Now you can fly the jet into good guy territory, pull the handles and get out of the airplane. Um, it was never really designed to land the airplane with that system. People have done it, but there's an equal amount of people who have tried and were unsuccessful and uh, none of those survived. Um, so it's kind of a risky venture to say like, Oh, I'm in man rev. I'm going to go back and land it. Like that's, it's a big decision to make. Um, but the flying it itself, it's just, it's extremely mushy. You know, you're, you're not flying the flight controls anymore. You're flying the trim tabs. Um, and that's what it's going to. So it goes to manual reversion and you're just using cables and pulleys to fly those trim tabs with no hydraulic assistance whatsoever. Um, does it go, you, does it go automatically or can I know no, you, you got to you got to flip that switch. Um, so there's a switch back there. And as soon as you flip it, if you have good hydraulic systems, it will deplete those hydraulic systems, take them down to zero. Um, and then it'll uh, essentially change over the servos and do an aileron float up. And then now it's disconnected from the ailerons. It disconnects the flight controls from them and is connected to the trim tabs instead. And obviously when you flip the switch back, then it re-energizes the hydraulic system. Exactly. It'll re-energize the system. It'll, it'll go back over and it'll be uh, a normal airplane again. Oh man. I just think flipping that switch on a good airplane just 
that makes me cringe, but obviously, <laughs> obviously you got to test it because if you ever, if someone ever needs it, that's what you want. And you mentioned flawed earlier, a forward line of uh, troops there. So really it's just to be in bad guy Terry and get you, get you across the line. So when you hop out of the aircraft, you got friendlies that are coming to get you versus the bad guys, right? Exactly. And that, that was the in, entire intent behind the system. And it's a great system. Uh, when we do the FCS, we'll take it out. So part of this, it's all flight control rigging, you know, um, obviously the A-10 is still just a hydraulic flight control system with the stick, your standard old, old school system, which I think, you know, us and the F-15C are probably the only ones, uh, only current fighters that are not a flickest type system, right? The, that you guys are used to. Yeah. I don't understand why you wouldn't have fly by wire, but it definitely has yeah. paid, it's paid, uh, dividends in the, the a 10. Cause like you mentioned, Colonel Campbell, she was all, she got shot up over Iraq and was able to get the jet back. And, and I think if people Google that, uh, the, that plane was just writ- It was like Swiss cheese, just riddled with holes. Exactly. Well, she have, you have a uh, fascinating career going from the enlisted side of the house, kind of, navigating some hurdles that you had to uh, get around in order to become a pilot. I think that there are people out there who definitely can relate. And when they hear that, know that there's a way to press forward and get after their goals. It's exciting that you get to go on the road again as the demo pilot. I'm excited to see you fly at a few shows. Um, Is there anything else you wanted to talk about or say to people who are listening in today? Um, you know, I hope they come out to some shows and talk to us a little bit more, but, uh, I'm excited to get back out there. I mean, you know how, how much fun and, and what a great opportunity the demo program is. So I'm excited to do it for a third year and, and see how much I improve even this year over last year. Um, obviously we get better every time we go out there and practice. So I'm excited to get out there and, and try some things new and, and really perfect my craft a little bit. Uh, it's the best job that's out there. Um, those listening, you can find Shiv at, at Shiv Wilton. I'll post it up there on Instagram as well as the uh, at A10 demo team uh, where you can get a lot of extra content, see some cool videos of Shiv flying around in the Mighty Hog and then get out to an air show and uh, see it in person because that's really the best way to do it. Yeah, man, come out and see the Hog. Hopefully we'll uh, put on a good show for everybody. Absolutely. Shiv, thanks for the time today. Again, I appreciate it and uh, look forward to seeing what you're going to do this next year on the demo and then uh, the next chapter of your life. Congrats, man. Brain, thanks for having me, man. It's been awesome. Yeah, absolutely, brother. Hope you enjoyed today's interview. I'll be back in two weeks with F-16 weapons instructor, Major Andy Chaos Davis. Wherever you're listening, please hit that subscribe button and leave a review. Again, that really helps me out. And if you're looking for additional content, patreon.com backslash the afterburn podcast until next time don't bring a week the afterburn podcast is a proud supporter of guns gear and memorial foundation helping our veterans and their families when they need it most to learn more visit gunsgarin.com slash rain